thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're continuing our study of the book of Genesis. We're now in chapter 2. Hopefully we'll be able to go through the end of this chapter today. And it just occurred to me that, uh, you know, sometimes the study of Scripture is very much like this man who found a pig. You know the story of the man who found a pig? Well, he was driving with his truck, and he found a pig by the roadside. A rather big pig. And so he decided to pick the pig up, pig up and put it in his truck. And as soon as he's done so, a cop stops him says, uh, what are you going to do with that pig? He says, well, officer, I'm sorry. I just found the pig by the side of the road. So I picked it up. Picked it up. And the officer said, take that pig to the zoo. The man said, you want me to take him to the zoo? Yes, that's what I want you to do. All right. And the man drove off. It was about 10 in the morning. Around 4 in the afternoon, the officer is still in the same area. He sees the man coming back with the pig. So he stops him. He says, didn't I tell you to take that, man, t- that pig to the zoo? Yes, you did. So, well, I took him to the zoo, and then we went to SeaWorld after that, and now I'm taking him over to Disney. Didn't get it. Because he didn't understand the literal meaning of what the officer said, because he missed the context. And oftentimes we do that with scripture. We miss the context. And we end up in Disney. (laughs) So let's try and not do that today. Um, We are in um, chapter 2. And let's go back and read the verses that we're really interested in today. Which is, if I'm not mistaken, starting verse 15 onward in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it, or guard it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Let's stop right there and, and, and reflect on those three verses. First, recall the context of this ongoing silent conversation between the writer of these texts and the surrounding context in Babylon. In the the, uh, mythology of creation, the Enuma Elish of the Babylonians, the gods created man for the purpose of working in the temple 
and doing the menial job they were tired of doing. We see an echo of this in this text. There is an affirmation that when God created man, he did indeed give him a command to do some work. But the context of that command and the meaning of it are vastly different. For here, God is not giving a man a command so that God may be pleased. It isn't that God needed man so that he may rest. Recall that in the order of things, God rested on the seventh day before he gave a command to man to do any work. And the indication is that God's rest is not dependent on our work. Unlike what was in the Babylonian mythology where the rest of the gods depended on what men would do for them. Right? Very important to keep in mind this ongoing silent defense of the, of the faith, but also of a true understanding of who God is, His nature, and our relationship to Him. Yet at the same time, there is a definite affirmation of man being a creature. So the text strikes this midpoint between the two extremes. On the one hand, it avoids the extreme that says that man is completely subservient, completely at the mercy of gods or of forces of nature or whatever else you want to call them. Something that we in this century, and especially you young folks, are dealing with you know, on a consistent basis, because whether through education or through movies or through heroes, what you're presented with is a world where man is alone and has only his own strength to depend on to save him. Dreadful, desperate, boring view of man. So that's one extreme the author avoids. The other extreme the author avoids is the other notion which you find very much in a, in a new age. Right? You want to win the lottery, all you need to do is just concentrate. Believe in it and you'll make it happen. Sort of thing. Man being all-powerful, independent from God. Those are two extremes of being, that are being uh, shunned away, that are being rejected. Man is a creature. God took man. Notice, God didn't set up a committee whose purpose was to set up a committee whose purpose is this to come up with a five-year plan and a budget to go with it to figure out if man is going to agree with God. You notice that? There's no democracy here. There's no... God, there is no... Let me run a, uh, a poll and ask man what he feels like doing. There's no marketing strategy. God took man. Hmm? That's the status of creatorhood, being a creature. God takes man. Just as he takes Adam, he takes every one of us. He has no excuses to give us, and he has no need to ask our permission. We are a creature. And most of the time, therein lies our biggest problem. We are a creature that realizes that we are a creature and we decided that that's not good enough for us. We want it to be more. 
on our own, according to our own plan, our own will. And we don't do it in a grandiose fashion. We don't stand before God raising our fists and screaming empty words. No, we do it in little ways, in very little ways. Do the dishes, I don't want to. You realize when your mother says, do the dishes, God is asking you to do the dishes? God just took you, put you in front of the sink, and is saying, do the dishes. I don't want to. And we answer this way without even thinking twice about how God views this answer. It doesn't even cross our mind. We think we have the right to answer this way. I don't mean the relative right. I don't mean the right that is given to us by God. I mean the absolute right. The right of a creator. To say, I will not do the dishes. Because really, between us saying, I will not do the dishes, and Satan saying, I will not serve, there's a difference of degree. Not of nature. And the answer, that is. It's the same thing. You see? We don't tend to rebel the big way. We rebel the mini way. The little bit of here and a little bit of there across our entire day. And we consider all of them trifles not to be counted for. Because we don't want to be a creature at the end of the day. And so, of course, when death hits, and death will hit, I'm not being a prophet here. Got news for you. Hmm? Whether it hits me, my wife, my children... My parents, it will hit. We have not prepared ourselves by refusing to do the dishes, by refusing to change a diaper, by refusing to smile. We have not prepared ourselves for the time when death will hit. And then what do we do? We stand before God and we give Him the opera version of I will not serve. Why me? Why now? How come? And we, we, we start, we think we have the right. To argue with him. I mean, really, it's unbelievable if you really think about the extent of our ability to think of ourselves as something far greater than we really are. So, that is the fundamental problem that we have with God. God takes us without asking first. And then we make God, and God becomes what? The enemy. And again, I don't mean God as in God. I mean the intermediaries that God put on our way. Our boss, our spouse, our children. A parent who is irritable and difficult to care for. This is how God becomes the enemy. Because we don't want to do the dishes. So he took man and put him in the Garden of Eden... To till it and to keep it. So I kind of have a good news and a bad news. All wrapped in one. The good news is, God put man in paradise. I mean, it could be kind of interesting. It could have been, and God took man and put him in Akatras. I just told you God is God. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. And man has no say. Man is the creature. He could have put him in Alcatraz. He didn't. He put him in the garden in a really nice place. That's the good news. The bad news, when Adam showed up at that five-star hotel, 
God had an image shovel. Till and keep. Welcome to paradise. You see the paradox here? I just want you first to really understand this. Because we typically don't hear the second part of that verse. God took man, put him in Eden, and to till and guard. Right? Eden is the thing that stands out. And what is Eden? What do we do? We do the pig syndrome. Right? We take the nicest resort we can think of, the five-star fantasy that our modern world has created, and we make that be an approximation of what Eden was. I mean, it should have been at least this good for it to qualify. Why? Because we are logical. I mean, if we, who are fallen, could create such a nice place as a resort... How much nicer would the garden be? Therefore, it must include everything the resort has. You know, top air conditioning, first-rate service, the spa, the whole thing. But then there's this little bit right there. To till it and keep it. That's why God put the man in the Garden of Eden. To till and to keep. So, what is embedded in the nature of man? If you were to be in paradise, what would you be doing? If the fall had never happened, and we were all born in paradise, what would we be doing? Till and keep. Right? Now notice, this verse does not have a footnote, and the footnote does not read, until you reach age 55, at which point you can retire. You, you get that? It isn't there. Start think. I mean, you, you'll see. In a second, you're, you're going to start wondering if our state now is not better than one in, in, in the garden. Okay. Let me ask this question. How, what was Adam's life expectancy? Forever. Forever to do what? Welcome to paradise. <laughs> I bet that's not what you had in mind when you heard those words. God took Adam and put him in the garden. There's no retirement, is there now? Is there vacation? Does it say somewhere, and God gave Adam three weeks every 2,000 years? Does it say that somewhere? I mean, with paradise like this, who needs hell? What's up with God? Is this like eternal torture? Do you call this Eden? Okay. We have to adjust our expectation. Right? We've got the wrong image of Eden. We have the image of the fallen children of Adam looking at Eden and completely deforming its purpose. Let's think things through. Number one, was Adam susceptible to tiredness the way we are? Could he be sick? No. Could he feel cold? Or warm? Could he be upset by the weather? No. You have to think this way to understand what's going on. We can't substitute our own reality where we have a fallen nature, where we ache, we suffer, we get tired, we need to rest, to the understanding of what Eden was and God's purpose for putting Adam there and getting him to till and keep. Adam would not tire, 
But why would then God give him a job to do if it wasn't for the fact that work is intrinsically part of our nature? Work is not an add-on that we created. Work is intrinsically part of our nature, and more specifically, parts of man's nature. I mean the male. What is intrinsically part of the woman's nature? Exactly. Childbearing. There is a natural order through which both man and woman can attain to happiness. But oh no, we know better God. We know better what makes us happy. This is part of the nature of man before the fall. This is a natural order that is embedded in our creatorhood. This is how God created us. It is not something that man can crow about. And it is not something that a woman can crow about. We have no, we have no choice in the matter. I mean, how silly would be of, a, of an elephant to crow about his trunk? Did he really work hard to get this trunk? No. Likewise, creatorhood means constraint and means somebody else makes a decision for you. And our problem is that we have a hard time accepting that. Contrast this with the words of Mary. Let it be done to me according to thy will. She knew who she was. She absolutely knew the limitation of a creature before her creator. And she had no problem with that. Why did God put Adam in Eden to till? God is perfect, isn't he? He created everything, and he said of everything, that everything was what? Not just good. Very good. Well, God, if everything was very good, why should we till anything? I mean, could you just make nature sort of taking care of itself? Right? Why do I have to till anything? Why do I have to work? Why is he giving Adam this job of tilling a garden? Now, this has two dimensions. The first one is, as I said, it seems as if there is an imperfection. There is something lacking in God's creation that Adam has to do. I mean, God does not foster vanity now, does he? He's not trying to tell Adam, look, I'm going to break nature so you can just fix it and feel good about yourself. Nature was created very good, yet it was not complete. Obviously, Adam had something to do which was useful. Not useful in the mercantile sense, as in, okay, Lord, let me see, how much can I trade this piece of Eden here? Right? Let me tell you the stock market. There's no such thing. It was useful in the spiritual sense for his own good. And that is why work is good for us. Fundamentally, God is a good father. And as a good father, he built the foundation of the house, but left portions of it unfinished so that his son may finish it and therefore participate in the act of creation. You understand? That's why God can say of the whole universe that it was very good. Why is it very good? Because it is fit to purpose. What is the purpose? The glorification of man. So that man may cooperate with God in the fulfillment of that work. 
And that's why St. Paul tells us that Christ is, in work, is, is working in us. Right? We are working with Christ. We work with Him in so many different ways, including the scientific endeavor. There too, we ought to work with God in the discovery of the universe and its full understanding. That's the till part. The second question that we have to consider is this. Suppose you are um, trying to build a city and there are boulders all over the place and it's really hard work. And suppose that Superman shows up and says, can I help? And you say, sure. And you hand Superman a broom. You see that, that yard over there? Could you go clean it for me? It's Superman. I mean, he can lift boulders. He could smash the whole thing, right? He can build the place for you in two days. You hand him a broom. Do, do you realize that this job of tilling the garden is really below man's dignity? It is below man's dignity. Here's the immortal being. Here's the perfect creature. Here's the king of the earth. Here's the guy who's supposed to run the whole place and he's handed a shovel. Till this little square that I'm calling the garden. Why would God do that? The answer is embedded in verse 17. The tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. What does that tell us? Tell us that even though Adam was the perfect being, he was immature. He was just a kid. And just in your own house, if you had your daughter who's six years old, you will not let your daughter take care of your house. She's not going to cook, and she's not going to clean the kitchen, and she's not going to take care of everything. But you wouldn't mind it if you gave her a dollhouse for her to take care of. Why? She's learning. That's the dollhouse. That's what Eden is. It's a small bit that God gave Adam saying, take care of this thing and then I'll give you the rest of the earth for you to take care. But let's start small. You've got a lot to learn. And again, everything you see here, God does with us. Exactly the same model. The same thing follows. The same thing follows. Actually, our Lord Himself says it, right? He who shall be faithful on small things shall be faithful on big things. I will give Him bigger things to take care of. Why? Because He wants us to grow and show ourselves to be truly mature. How do we show ourselves to be truly mature? We do the dishes quickly and with a smile. We're starting to mature in the faith. Now, substitute do the dishes to anything you do not like to do, which God gives you to do. And you'll understand what I mean. That's the till part. Let's talk about the key part, or the guard part. Who is on earth at this point in time? The evil, yes. So, Adam has two enemies. Two enemies already. First one is Satan. For the angels fell before the creation of man. At least so tradition tells us. Right? And obviously the tempter comes to tempt them in the next chapter. That's the first enemy. 
But then there's a second and much worse enemy, himself. He's got an eternity in that garden. Who does he have to keep the garden from? Himself. You see how the test is structured now. To teach Adam to grow. And how will Adam grow? Only in the company of God. Only if he walks with God. Only if he relies on God. Only if he learns from God. Only if he takes God as his example. As the one to imitate. In other words, only if Adam conforms to Christ. Even though Christ has not yet come. Only then will Adam be able to truly till and keep. So you see what God does. He created this little place called Eden, beautiful place, representing truly repre- representative of the beauty of God. And he places Adam in it, and he gives him these two commands. I want you to till it, I want you to keep it. Now the job wasn't very difficult, because everything came easy to Adam, and the trees gave him all the food he needed. He didn't need to work for a living. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was... I'm taking care of all the necessities of life for you. Now I want you to grow. I want you to focus on your studies. I want you to really take my word seriously and live according to it. That's the command. When you understand it this way, the rest of it follows. It is natural. The Lord God commanded the man. Now remember when I told you about the covenant? So a covenant, again is a pledge that is taken between a strong party and a weak party. And that pledge is for the purpose of of extending the family. It's an exchange of people, unlike a contract, which is an exchange of goods. A contract may be broken if the terms are not um, followed. A, A covenant can never be broken because it engages the word of the strong party. And especially when it is a covenant with God, when God engages himself in that covenant, he cannot be deceived, nor does he deceive, which means that he knows exactly the terms of this covenant and the terms are just. Therefore, they will always hold and it will always be true. So he engages in this covenant with this man and he tells him, here are the terms. And again, there's no negotiation here. The strong party sets the terms, not the weak party. The terms are as follows. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Alright. God gives... Adam, a blessing. I have provided for you. You may freely eat. Doesn't just mean eat as in, I've taken care of your food. Oh, but for water, I'm sorry. You're going to have to lug this jar for about you know, 60 miles to get what now. Through eat, it means all the material aspects of life are provided for you. I'm taking care of you. You have nothing to worry about. This is the term. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Let's first understand one thing. God isn't telling Adam, see that tree over there? 
It's poisonous. You eat it, you die because of the poison in it. That's not what God is saying. He's not saying that the fruit in the tree of good and evil will bring death to Adam. He's basically saying, you break my commandment, you will die. Do you understand that? Do you understand how it works? All right. The same thing God is telling us today. There's absolutely no difference. God brings us... Let me talk to the men first. We'll address the ladies later. Brings us to the Garden of Eden. What is this garden? It is your family. And in the case of a priest, it is the parish. And in the case of a nun, it will be the community. He brings us to this garden. He does that. We don't do it. We don't do it. He does it. That means if you think you have a calling to the marital life, to married life, you pray that God protects your future spouse. And you pray for your spouse. Because God will bring you. You trust in Him, not in yourself. And that means that if you meet a young man or a young woman who you think you're interested in, you will not make that decision by yourself. You will go consult a computer on the internet to see if the two profile match. No, that's not what I'm saying either. You'll bring that young man or young woman to some people who are wise in your eyes and you ask them if they think that the two of you are compatible, that it will work. And you will listen. You will be obedient. You will be docile. And if God blessed you with good parents who are Christian and devout and pray, you will listen to them because through the agency of the covenant, God will speak to you through your parents. That's how it works. But if the spirit of rebellion has set in already, and if you already have a very difficult relationship with your parents and you see them as the obstacle to your happiness, there are more fundamental issues that you need to deal with. Okay? And I've told you before, contraception will bring this forth. That's a bitter fruit of contraception, the rebelliousness of children and the sense that they, will, that the sense they have that their parents are, have become their enemies. And once God does that, He will set certain parameters. He will tell you, I want you to do this, I don't want you to do that. And He will do so through two ways. Number one, your innate talents. If God gave you the talent to play the piano, and if every time you sing, there's a storm in your neighborhood, well, God has told you what He wants you to do and not to do. If you go on singing... You'll spend the rest of your life wet and alone. It just follows now, doesn't it? Your innate talents is God's way of saying, here are the things that I want you to do. And the sooner you embrace them, the quicker you'll be happy about it. Right? If God made you an amazing plumber, that's how God wants you to get to heaven, through plumbing. Now, for women, there's a special vocation called married life and motherhood, which is not a job. It's a state, and it will remain forever, for eternity. We'll get to talk about that later. So, he sets the parameter, and he will tell you what he wants you to do, not to do. Now, you have two choices. You obey that covenant, 
or you don't. Now you might tell me, okay, but in case of Adam, God told Adam explicitly, here's what I want you to do, and he, Adam, got into that covenant. Did, do you notice, did Adam say anything? Did he say yes or no? Did he debate the conditions of the covenant? No. Complete silence. Evoking what? Evoking the day that you and I entered into this covenant, which is the day of our baptism. When we were baptized, we were purchased by Christ. Christ paid to free us from sin on the cross, and therefore He claims us for Him. We belong to Him. We don't belong to ourselves. At this moment in time, we've entered into this covenant. And He set some rules. We follow them or we don't. Same thing. That's what we're called to do. Question, why is the tree of knowledge of good and evil called the tree of knowledge of good and evil before Adam had any clue what good and evil meant? God tells Adam, here's the tree of good and evil. The guy knows not evil. So it's like, you know, somebody coming to us and saying, all right, you see this book? This is the book that debates the relationship between the general theory of relativity and the asymmetric groups. If you read it, you shall surely die. The guy doesn't know good from evil. Why is God telling him good and evil when he doesn't even know it? Because, in a fundamental sense, everything we do in a spiritual life is driven by faith. By faith and trust in God. God will tell us to do many, many things we don't understand. Sometimes, 15 years of our life will go on and we're wondering, what does it mean? Sometimes as we reflect back on our life, we go, why did I have to do all this? What's the purpose of it? We can't seem to be able to find meaning into our actions, into events. And God is saying... You don't find meaning in actions and events simply because you understand them. You find meaning in actions and events because I am meaningful. Because in me there is no contradiction. I am neither deceived nor can deceive. You can never ever comprehend your life in events. You can only comprehend your life in me. So stop trying to find satisfaction and contentment and happiness and understanding by studying pieces of your life of which you only have a very small glimpse. And understand that your heart will always be restless until it rests in me. That's why. God will tell you many things you won't completely understand. You want Exhibit A? Our Lady. Child, why have you done this to us? Your father and I were searching for you, sorrowing. Did you not know? Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I was to be in my father's house? And they did not understand that saying. She didn't understand. St. Joseph didn't understand. It is not in understanding that you will find contentment. That's a myth. You want exhibit A? The devil. He understood more than any one of us or all of us put together. 
He's got knowledge none of us will ever have on, in, in, in this life. What good did it do him? What is this tree of knowledge of good and evil anyhow? What is that thing? Well, obviously it's not, okay, it's not an apple, all right? It's not an apple. Certainly not a Granny Smith apple. When was the last time you've tasted a really good Granny Smith apple? They're really hard to come by. So, what is it? Obviously, it is not a natural tree. So what does that indicate about the nature of Eden? Eden has natural trees that are there for the body. But there are two trees in it which are there for the soul. So therefore, Eden has a natural dimension, and yet at the same time, a supernatural dimension. Part of that supernatural dimension is open. That is the tree of life. Adam may freely eat of the tree of life. Another part of it is closed. The knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, these two trees addresses man's spiritual dimension. It addresses his soul and, this is the tree of life, and his rationality. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And why did then God restrict Restrict man in his rationality, in his understanding. Because man is made of spirit and a body. And God knew that knowledge to be fruitful must be planted in wisdom. Knowledge apart from wisdom becomes tyranny. It is therefore there to serve the egotistic tendencies of man. When knowledge is separated from wisdom. What is wisdom in its very core? Wisdom is the knowledge and love of God. It is knowledge mixed with love. You know when you see a couple who've been together maybe for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. They don't look like your... Um, they, don't, they don't look like the exhibit A of romantic love. Which these days, there's this sort of real um, obsession with youth. But they love each other. Why? Because the man knows that behind... These, the, the tired face of his wife lies so many acts of love. So many sacrifices. He'd seen so much of her goodness throughout the years that his life for her increases. And the same for the woman. Knowledge, when mixed with love, produces wisdom. Do you, do you see where I'm getting at? Why did God restrict fundamentally, in a fundamental sense, why did God restrict Adam from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? You women should give me the answer. Because the men typically are sort of, you know, Rambo, let's go and then conquer. <laughs> Come on. What is lacking for the guy? A woman. How can he be complete without her? 
Therefore, how can he be even able to comprehend true wisdom, true knowledge of good and evil apart from her? He can't. You get it? There's a fundamental, intrinsic, intrinsic, that is um, essential, not accidental, limitation in Adam's accessing that tree of good and evil, which is the absence of a woman. Now, why am I saying that? It isn't because there is something fundamental in a creature, be it man and a woman, that allows us to grow in wisdom. No. Remember, God created man, what? In His image. Up to this point, man being alone, we have what? We have a truncated image of the Trinity. We need the woman and the shared love between them for both of them to comprehend, to begin to understand the true nature of God and therefore wisdom. And only then would they be able to truly comprehend good and evil. Because then they will see it, or rather they will reflect it properly. They will reflect it as God sees it. They would express the truth about good and evil that is in God. Apart from God, the image is truncated. It is deformed. So God is not restricting the knowledge of good and evil from Adam because He doesn't want to give it to him. He wants to give it to him when he's ready for it. When he is complete. Put differently. In talking about the spiritual life, there are degrees in the spiritual life. There's wisdom, the wisdom of God, comes to us through contemplation of God. It isn't something that we can just study in books and learn. We can learn a lot about in books. But unless and until we sit down and contemplate lovingly, or enter into a loving contemplation of the face of God, until we do so, we will not attain to wisdom. Wisdom shall not be revealed to us. Remember in the Latin rite last Sunday, I thank thee, Father, for you have not revealed these things to the wise and the learned, but you only have re re revealed them to the little ones. What does he mean by little ones? Precisely those who, as a little child, contemplating the face of his mother, would sit and contemplate the face of God. And only then would these things be revealed. That is God's plan. Now, God knows our nature and He knows that most of us, on our own, are too selfish to learn. We don't have enough love in us for us to learn about Him. So, God pairs us up, man and a woman. There are those whom He called to a higher calling, to the priesthood and to them, or to the religious life, and to them He gives special graces to sort of bypass the excellent union between a man and a woman and go to the greater to the union of a greater excellence which is between the soul and God directly. But for the majority of us, he gets us to meet him through another. And then through another we have a child. And when the child comes that's when most of us especially the guys will learn more about God than any other book. Because in us parenting our child we learn about how God parents us. In loving our children, we learn about God's love for us. Right? So the, the family, therefore, becomes the school of God. 
It is the first school of God, and through it, true knowledge of good and evil comes through. That's why the church is so insistent there are certain subjects, like for instance sexuality, that should not be taught apart from the family. They should be taught in the family by the parents. By the parents. Right? And men, I'll, I'll, I'll need to remind you, especially you folks who come from the Middle East, when it comes to sexuality, you have girls, you are the man to speak to your girl. You don't tell your wife, you go talk to her about those things. No, she needs to hear them from you. It is very important. And if you can't sit down and talk to your daughter about those things, when the age is appropriate and the proper context, you've got a dysfunctional family. Sorry to say. But that's the truth. It means you have not yet learned to love your daughter enough to talk to her about the things of God. Remember, sex is a thing of God. One more thing I will say before I move on. There is definitely a, a liturgical setting to this. Because just as in the temple, the Holy of Holies was restricted. That was an area that was restricted. Just as in our churches, right, the sanctuary during Mass should not be accessed willy-nilly by, any of, by all of us, right, reflecting on the sort of awesomeness of God, so it is in the garden that that particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was set apart from everything else. So that only when Man enters into this liturgical celebration, first through marriage and then the praise of God, will he then be able to access, to gain access to that part of the garden which was set apart. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. All right. What's wrong with this verse? It is not good. Haven't we heard God saying it was very good? All right, what's up with it? It's not good. Well, okay, but why is he saying it is not good now? I mean, did God change his mind? Was this sort of, you know, R&D? He created man, dropped him there, and then he's just watching. And after a while he goes, huh, we need, you know, we need to do a course correction. The guy, man, seems to be not very happy. It's not good for him to be alone. Let's see what we can do now. Is that what it means when he says it is not good? Could that, could that be the meaning of it? No, of course not, because then that would indicate imperfection in God. Right? In his knowledge, in his foresight, in his omnipotence, in his omniscience, in his ability to know everything outside of time. So why is he saying that? Yes, but, I mean, yes, man is incomplete by himself. But didn't God know that in the beginning? And why did he create him incomplete by himself? Here's the deal. You got your daughter in art. She's got talent for drawing. Right? But she's sitting at home, and she's sulking. So you stand before this wall, and you say, hmm... It is not good that this wall is empty. I, I, I think we need to do something here. Why would you be saying that? To help the daughter grow. Okay. 
Yes, to encourage her, yes. But fundamentally, what is missing here? What is missing is that she's not the one saying it. You get it? Wasn't Adam a perfect man? Yes, he was. Wasn't he given abilities and knowledge to know about himself, if he was happy or not? Yes? Yes? I'm not asking you if Adam figured it out that he needed a woman. I think that is, that's a stretch. He could not have conceived of a woman on his own. That's impossible. It's a, it's a leap that we intellectually would not be able to come up with. It's very hard for us to imagine a man, or a woman for that matter, right, who's never seen a man or a woman. I mean, vice versa, right? The person of the opposite sex and trying to come up with one. It's, 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 it's inconceivable. But, if God says it is not good for a man to be alone, is that a true statement? Is it a true statement that it is not good for men to be alone? Yes. Alright, if it is a true statement, doesn't that impl- imply that Adam wasn't happy? Right? Doesn't it logically follow that Adam wasn't happy? Because otherwise, God would not have said it is not good for men to be alone. Right? But it must follow, therefore, that Adam wasn't happy. Didn't Adam know about that? That he wasn't happy? He was a perfect man. He didn't have any of the confused passions that we have. He wasn't by himself. He was with God. Remember, he's never by himself. But to be alone as in without a companion. Right? Yeah. But why is it then, why is it that God is saying it? That's the question. You can tell, this is a telltale sign that the man Adam was up to no good. If you love your father and you have a problem, even if you're not sure what the problem is, won't you go and talk to him? Would you wait for your father to come and talk to you? Do you see what the problem is? You see why God is saying it? He's not saying it for himself. He designed it this way for Adam's self-discovery. He wanted Adam to recognize, uh, I don't have it all here, something is missing, and to come to him and say so. He wanted a son. Instead, what did he get? The older son. The whole story of creation is wrapped up in that, par- in that parable in St. Luke of the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know that older brother? You remember that par- parable? The, the, the kid who takes off with his, and he comes back? And what does the older brother do? He finds out about it, and what does he do? He would not enter. He didn't complain. He did not complain. He did not speak. He stayed outside. It is the father who went to him. You see what's going on here? There is a fundamental psychology of rebellion being described blow by blow, and we miss it because we focus on, well, if God God is I mean God knows everything, so how come God says it's not good? 
Why? Because we allow doubts about the text to enter our mind instead of holding fast to the truth that the church teaches us, that scripture is inerrant. And scripture has no contradiction once it's properly understood in its context. Yes? So Adam already has it, Absolutely. Yes, he was created perfect. That's a very good question. Adam was created perfect, and Adam is rebelling. You know what we call this? The mystery of iniquity. At the fundamental, in its most fundamental core, sin is a mystery. It cannot be fully understood. That same thing can be said of Lucifer. Right? Perfection is not assurance of holiness. God speaks to tell His Son, I know your pain. Even though you're not talking to me, I'm already ahead of you. I've already pre-planned all of this. If only you could trust me. But notice, God doesn't get upset. And He doesn't smack Adam on the head and kicks him out. He comes to His help. I will make him a helper. Fit for him. Do you now understand the meaning of helper? Again, taken by our fallen nature and the world we live in, we think of helper equals servant. Alright? I'm going to go home. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take off my shoes. My wife's going to bring me the, di- the, the dinner. I'm going to sit down, eat. She's going to be standing right next to me. She's going to go do the dishes. I'll read my newspaper. That's what we think is going on here. Number one, it is completely and utterly and absolutely, and as Dr. Spock would say it, illogical. The guy is perfect. He doesn't need anybody to bring him shoes. He doesn't wear shoes. And he doesn't read newspaper. So none of that imagery applies. It is, again, the pig story that I told you earlier. It doesn't apply. He's immortal. He's not tired. He doesn't feel sickness. He doesn't age. His hair doesn't fall off. None of that happens to him. So he doesn't need any of that stuff. And there are no dishes to do anyhow. I will make him a helper. What does that mean? What does a helper indicate? Somebody needs what? Help. Somebody needs help. And I will make him a helper fit for him. What's the intent? What is the reproach? Because he no longer considers me a helper fit for him. Do you get it? Do you get it? He no longer considers me a helper fit for him. Yes, that is the love of the Father. He really goes down to the level of His Son and doesn't put His own honor and His own glory before His love. That is why Jesus Christ is truly the image of the Father, for He emptied Himself for, out of love for us, but the Father already does it. You understand why the priesthood is such a, a much a glorious union because in the case of a priest, God truly, the priest is saying, God, you are a helper fit for me. 
you will help me reach heaven. A priest, effectively, is what Adam should have been. And that's why we truly honor priests. And that's why the priesthood is a, such an incredible calling from God to men. And it is such a tragedy that Catholics today, many Catholic families do not, do not value the priesthood. And when I say that, I mean that they don't think that they should have plenty of kids so that they may be able to give a, a priest to God. They only think of kids as something that concerns them, not as a gift back to God. Indeed, how far have we fallen from the glory of God? All right, so that's what's going on here. That's the fundamental meaning. The woman is going to be a helper for Adam so that he may reach heaven. And the man is a helper for the woman that she may reach heaven. They help each other. Pardon? I'm speaking of now. I apologize. I mean today. Yes. In the case back then for Adam and Eve, it was so that they may obey that commandment. The knowledge of, truth, of, of, of good and evil, you shall not, lest you die. Right? God could tell already that the, the guy was brooding. He wasn't talking to him. So he says, all right, I'm going to try and reach him by another mean, by something that appeals to him more than I do. I'm not taking anything away from women. Don't get me wrong. God, in good time, was intent on bringing a woman to Adam. This is not about the woman being less than a man. It has nothing to do with it. Understand the purpose here. The thing is that it was precipitated by Adam's moodiness. What should have been a glorious wedding ended up being more like the two of them eloping. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, the, the, that was its name. Alright, so God is condescending to the man's desire to do something beside tilling and keeping. So he gives him a share of the glory. And man names them, or whatever the man names them, that's the name. My six years old, her name is Tess, uh, Marie Therese. And one day she declared to us, she was four and a half, she said, I am Tessa Big Girl. We called her Tessa. Okay, and when we say the prayers, in her case, when she invokes her, her, her saint, she will say, Saint Tessa of the little child Jesus, pray for us. As a matter of fact, she started by saying, Saint me, pray for us. <laughs> we had to correct that. But we do let her say, Saint Tessa of little child Jesus. All right? That kind of joy that the child brings to the parent is what... Adam brings to God, is what you bring to God. The same joy is felt by God the Father when His children participate in His will. That's what He wants. But there is a fundamental reason why He brought these beasts to Adam. There is a lesson that Adam needs to learn about himself. 
which is that I am none of these. My nature is wholly different. I am set apart in creation. And he needs to understand that. And then, in all of these, for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. Scripture is so, I mean, it's so interesting. Scripture does not make that man speak, but speaks in his behalf. Didn't you know that, I mean, God did not know that there was no helper fit for him in all these creatures? Are we back in the R&D department? No, he knew. But he wanted the man to know. He wanted the man to learn about himself. And why is it that Adam doesn't say, Lord, this, your, your creation is beautiful, but none of those is a helper fit for me. Why is he not speaking? There is no dialogue between the man and God. It's only one way. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall onto the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, it isn't necessarily a rib. There is a play on the word rib and life in Hebrew. So it, it is really his side. His side. And there are many, many reasons why God would do so. Um, in a fundamental... In a fundamental Catholic sense, the reason why he does so is because Adam prefigures Christ. Adam is a prefiguration, is a pointer to Jesus Christ. St. Paul tells us that the marriage between a man and a woman is a sign of the love of Christ with his church. Why does he say that? Because of this text. The reason why God takes the woman out of the side of Adam is because the church is born out of the side of Christ on the cross when Christ was in a deep sleep. That deep sleep prefigures a form of death through which we give life. And when Christ died on the cross, the soldier came and pierced his side and blood and water flowed, which is the birth of the church. That's the fundamental reason why this is happening. Apart from Christ, this text remains mysterious. There is another reason why God takes woman out of man. Because it indicates that woman and man share the same nature, but that, <coughs> but that also, in a fundamental sense, the man is the head of the woman, just as Christ is the head of the church. Now, to be the head of the woman means specifically that in a family, the spiritual guidance, the spiritual direction, the the final say on the well-being and the welfare of the family rests with the man. That's what it means. And a woman is to obey her husband as long as he is godly, which means he's obeying God. Man has no absolute power to wield. He is only there by proxy. He is there to represent God with his family and take care of them. Just as Christ loves his church, man must love his wife, and his family. And a woman is happy in that love. At the end of the day, what every woman wants is the man who will take care of her. Because she is created that way. Because she is a symbol of the church. She represents the church. Christ takes care of his church. And the church rejoices in the presence of her bridegroom. 
And so it is between a man and a woman. So the peace that Christ gives us is precisely when He enables us, man and woman, to accept our condition of a creature and to live it fully so that we may have happy, wholesome families representing the glory of God and giving glory to God. That's what our purpose is when we are in a married life and the purpose of those who are called to this higher calling is to give the same to the church directly. Then the man said, the only time he speaks, Notice carefully his words. This at last. What does at last indicates? He's been waiting. Did he say a word? Nothing. This is not the same silence. This is not the same silence as that of St. Joseph. Now there you have a completely different silence. It's a contemplative silence. It is the silence of the man standing before God, adoring Him and loving Him. This is a cunning silence. It is the silence of a servant before his master. It is the silence of a man afraid to speak until he gets what he thinks he wants. He doesn't know that yet. God always works this way. He gives us what we need, but He wraps it in what we want. He gives us what we need, but He wraps it with what we want. That's why you see these young people who are in love. And what do we say about love? Love is what? Blind. And it's a good thing. Right? Because if they really sat down and opened up a spreadsheet and started listing all their qualities and the pros and cons of each one of them, down to the minutest detail, and calculated and computed all of this, they may have decided they'll never marry. They'll never find anybody perfect. And that's a fundamental statement. Why? Because perfection comes, not perfection, holiness comes through marriage. They will be perfected. They will be made holy through marriage. So obviously they cannot be perfect. So those of you who have older kids, especially you women, and you see the husband-to-be or the wife-to-be come along, that's when you have to read this passage. And look at them in, the, in this eye. She's not going to be perfect. No. She's never going to be perfect to match the perfection of your son. I mean, I had one mother tell me straight out, right? If I was a girl marrying my son, I'd fall to the ground and I would give thanks to God. Well, she changed her stance ten years later. But back then, her son could no, do no... Here's a cue I'll give you. Here's a a rule of thumb. If your son is about to be married, and if you can't truly um, develop a um, a very wise relationship with his wife, or vice versa, with, with the husband, if you can't objectively recognize a situation for what it is, and truly give a wise advice, you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. And we all have to work on this by essentially recognizing that God has a plan to make all of us holy, and we should always remind ourselves how we were when we started, and hopefully 
we're a little bit better now. Or at least, not any worse. To be on a safe side. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is to be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, he recognizes her to be his perfect fit. And this is what God has for every one of us. He brings us together and he knows what fits and what is the purpose of it. And we have to trust his decree when a marriage is, is solemnly decreed as true and binding, it will be as long as we live. And it isn't just because it's fun. It is because we have to till and guard until the day we're separated by death. We till and guard our family. We till and guard our relationship. I'll tell you something, for those of you who are married or for those of you who are contemplating marriage, if you and your spouse are not spending at least, at least 10 to 15 hours a week together, and I'm not talking watching a movie, I'm talking together. If you are not spending 10 to 15 hours with your spouse a week, okay, together, Someone else will. That's a simple fact of life. God put you together for you to do things together. That means, man, you have to force yourself to continue having dates with your wives. Even if there's a really good sports game, you take your wife out. And wives, you have to succeed in pulling yourself out of the black hole of all your girlfriends to spend time with your husband, even if it means... You're not going to get the conversation you want. Why? You have to till and guard. Both of you have to work at it. It is a divine, solemn calling. It is very important that men and women are engaged into something they're doing together. Whatever, whatever it may be. You like playing Scrabble together? Play Scrabble. Do something together and do it regularly. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Cleave. Look how strong that word is. This is not demanded of the woman, by the way, guys. It is demanded of you. You are to cleave to your wife. Why does it go in this way? Because Scripture is very realistic. You don't have to tell a woman to cleave to her husband. She'll do so naturally. That's what she wants. The guy is the problem. He's the one having issues of cleaving. He's the one having a hard time working in this relationship. He thinks, all right, I'm married from 8 to 5. I'm at work. Come home. Sit down. Have dinner. We'll chat for 15 minutes. And I can sit in front of the TV. Or play a game. Or go, go do something. Do something. My wife wants to sit down and talk about things. I got no clue what she's talking about. I mean, why is that important? She's told me she's, she's got a headache. She can take an aspirin. And she's telling me all these problems about friends that I even know. But I, she wants me to sit down and listen. And when we go to the restaurant, she always asks me, what are you going to take? It's like my decision is, is somehow important in the formula, in the equation of her decision. I want to order my plate. No clue that what she's trying to say is, 
We want to share. Sharing is important for me. Why? Not because guys can't do it. Just they don't want to do it. Because they're like Adam. Give me the goods and I'll run. The women have other issues. We'll get to that next week. But the guys understand. You've got to spend time with your wife. If you're spending time with anybody else more than you're spending time with your wife, other than by obligation when you're at work, you've got issues. You've got issues. Because none will make you holy but your wife. Understand that. Okay, I don't have time to deal with the nakedness, so we'll take it on next week. It's a big <laughs> subject. I wished, I mean, I, no, we'll take it on next week. Okay, I got a few min- min- minutes for questions. Yes. What he's saying is, had Adam been obedient to God, he may have imaged the Trinity in a much deeper way, such that just as the Son proceeds from the Father, and the two of them then brings forth the Holy Spirit, he will then have effectively be more active participant in the generation of, of Eve from his side, instead of being put to sleep in a passive sense. And then the two of them may have also generated children, in a, effectively, though in a natural way, because this is how God intended it, right? Absolutely, so that's, that, that could be possibly the case. The most important thing, though, that I would say about that is that in that particular period, God effectively gives us time to get ready, to prepare. So if you find yourself sort of in a solitude, if you don't have a lot of friends, if you find that no one is really talking to you, that's a wonderful period to be in. This is a period of preparation. Spend as much time as you can working on yourself. Spend as much time as you can in prayer. Frequent the blessed sacraments. You can do it. Once you're married, you have kids. It becomes a lot harder. Don't think of it as a disappointment. Think of it as a great occasion to really grow in the intimacy of God. All right? Yes. How are the details of Genesis revealed to whomever wrote them? The... Uh, the, the earthly author, the man who wrote this text, who penned it down, first it was given as a vision to Moses, and later on it was penned down in a specific context, which is Babylon. That's what we think today. And in that context, there was a fight against the Babylonian mythology, which was really equivalent to today's culture. It was popular, it was hip, it was the thing that everybody wanted. So from his perspective, he was writing back to answer this. Now, we have a much deeper a deeper field of vision because of Christ. We see things through the cross, right? So not everything may have been revealed to him and not everything have been understood even for, um, you know, as the Jews themselves reflected on it until the coming of Christ who opened our eyes to truly understand things from God's perspective. And it is true also of our own life. We may understand one thing today and later something else come, comes to us because God t- talks to us through scripture continuously. Yes. Yes. Why did God t- tell Adam about the knowledge of the, 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 the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and was re- wasn't ready for it? Because it was not a matter of being ready. None of us will ever be ready. That's the lesson. It is not a matter of being ready. On our own, we'll never be ready. It is a matter of being close to God. And that's what he missed. That's exactly the boat he missed. If you have God with you, as scripture tells us, if God is with us, who shall be against? What matters if we're ready or not, if God is on our side? That's what Jesus told his disciples. Do not fear what you have to say, for I will send you the Holy Spirit, who will give you words to speak. 
So it's not about being ready. It's about loving God. And that mystery of the knowledge of, true, of, of, of good and evil was there to help Adam focus on God. Go get help from God. That's why. Yes, uh, absolutely. The notion, and it's actually the church doesn't, doesn't, doesn't teach us this, but some men gloat and say, well, ha, well, you know, Eve was the fault. Well, yeah, she, shares, she has a shared responsibility, but at the end of the day, it was Adam. Because as we shall see, when God speaks those curses, the greatest curse, death, comes not because of the disobedience of Eve, because of the disobedience of Adam. He chose to listen to his wife. You know how huge this is? You've been, you see how I've been insisting on the fact that the guy's not talking? Why? Because he's not listening. And when does he choose to listen? When he's already made his mind. Yes. Culture means to till precisely. So when we, in our families, we must cultivate a true Christian culture. So you defend, you protect, you're very careful. You don't allow your kids to play with any kid. So in my house, I have a pool. And there's a rule in my house. And I don't care who comes. There will not be a girl in my house going to the pool in bikini. And people know that ahead. You protect. You defend. You are vigilant. That's why we don't watch TV. I mean, we have the screen, but we watch DVDs. And we screen things for our children. Because we want to cultivate in them the sense of what is beautiful, what is true. Teach your children to recognize what is beautiful and what is true, and trust me, they'll know immediately what is not beautiful and what is false. They can tell right away. Okay? And no, you don't have to have your children experience everything, and you know what? Nobody who says that really believes in it. And do you know why? I'll give, you, I'll give it to you in one sentence. How many people do you know experience going and sitting in a garbage can for a couple of hours. How many people you know opens up a garbage can and sit in it for a couple of hours? You know anybody who does that? So it's not true that people want to experience everything. What they really mean is, I want to rebel. That's what they really mean when they say, I want to experience everything. Right? It's nonsense. Any other question? Very good. God bless you. And let's end with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.